Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. We're going live. You should have a notification. It is 10.30 a.m. on the West Coast, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast. That means it's time for value after hours. The name makes no sense. I grant you that. Uh, Joined by my regular co-host, Jake Taylor, and special guest, Corey Hofstein. How are you, Corey? Um, I'm brilliant at the moment. Thank you, Toby. I'm excited to be here. I really don't know anything about value investing, so I'm glad the show's name is a lie. Neither do we. Well, yeah, you're, you're in good company then, so. So we're excited to be here. Where am I? Yeah, let everybody know. Uh, currently living in Grand Cayman. I was living in L.A., yeah, living in LA, COVID hit, said peace out. Wife and I moved to Grand You Cayman. and everybody else. Everyone oh, thinks man. it's a tax dodge. There's no tax benefits being an American here. I just want to make that very clear. If anything, you don't state tax, right? It's worse. Well, because eh, I was living huh. in California. I don't know if California will get let me get away with yeah, that. Yeah, California. You got the fish hooks in. I got the fish hooks in from California. Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't spent a single day there. I'm pretty sure I'm paying full state taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is you can. All these losses will work. The joke's on them. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> so you get Scotland, Chapel Hill, Townsville. What time is it in Townsville? San Francisco, London, Hartwell. Got to find out so I can give the Australian Eastern Seaboard a shout out. You got a real global audience here. Yeah. One fun. on every continent. <laughs> Antarctica. Letting Man, the team down. That would be good if we got Antarctica. I'd, I would celebrate that. Fellas, uh, there is some weird stuff going on in the markets. Though. I feel like I feel like almost every time I come on, I say there's some weird stuff going on. I think it would be weird if there wasn't weird stuff going on, but I feel like this is a particularly weird time. Um, if you're not confused, you don't know what's going on. If you know what's going on, you, you don't no know what's idea. going on. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. good opportunity for us to chat to, to Corey, who's uh, one of the smartest blokes across all of this stuff. He's uh, really good at faking it, Toby. That's all. That's all we need. That's, that's all we're looking for. Handsome dude to uh, <laughs> sound good. That's all we're looking for. <laughs> well, so what, what's, uh, what is going on, Corey? Can you, can you let us know? Uh, yeah, I wish I knew. I actually wrote a note. It's funny. This is perfectly timed because I wrote a note to a bunch of my clients this morning. And I, I basically said, in my opinion, not that my career has been that long, but like the last 15 plus years, I have never been more confused about the macro picture than I am today. Right. So I, here's, here's a little list of things we got going on. You sort of still have COVID. You still have latent stimulus impact. You still have supply chain issues, still have demand shock. You have inflation risk, quantitative tightening concerns, a war. Economic sanctions. I love how that the comes in like 10 of the Yeah. But yeah. Wait, wait, I'm doing it sort of chronologically. The financial <laughs> system has become a weapon. You now yeah. have self-imposed supply shocks. Russia versus non-Russia commodity basis risk. China political risk. Euro dollar versus Euro renminbi risk in the system. And that's just like sort of what I could come up with off the top of my head. That's like Tuesday. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you left out uh, like... Canadian oppression of right. rights and uh, no, we've forgotten about that civil unrest as the yeah we've moved on from that. It's wild. It's wild. And and so my my big point I, there's two points I was trying to make in this piece I wrote, but one of the big points was like when there's a lot more clarity in the market, I think markets can price things in a lot more linear fashion, right? Like when the market all they cared about was will the Fed hike or not hike basically rates move as sort of a Simple probabilistic times. yeah simpler times right as like a probabilistic measure like if if it we think the fed's going to hike 25 bips and rates move 20 bips like that is a sign of a high probability the fed is going to hike but when you have like a more complex dynamic system and the second and third degree third order sort of events become lower probability it means that like every single event even though the outcome of that event has the same sort of impact as it would have before, it becomes a lower probability. And so when that event potentially happens, 
the price movements become more violent. And so we're just sort of in this environment of like, until all this macro narrative shakes out, I just think you get very violent moves in unpredictable directions. Look, on top of that too, I think that the the market has been expensive for a long time and kind of looking for a reason. I, that's why I kind of think we get the 2018, 2019, 2020, all those big dips are as a result of we're just, things are expensive and the, the market's looking for reasons to sell off. It feels a little bit artificial, right? With rates pinned as low as they are. I don't know who said it, but there was one comment I was reading on Twitter the other day that basically said, we should have entered into a recession in 2020, right? We got bailed out. This is sort of the reckoning of like, this is, we just, all we did was push the recession out further and have made the picture much more complicated. I, I just think we've been so trained over the last 15 years for these violent sell-offs and snapback rallies. Uh, it's a little cliche at this point, but I, I think the path to most pain is just that grind downward, right? That's a classic bear market, right? Where it just, yeah. you get 14, 15, 16, 17 rallies that get sold to lower lows. Yeah. I feel like I'm about to pull a, a Jake Taylor and drop some knowledge. Maybe I, I don't have anything like Please written, do. but, but so the, the whole, like the, the, the letter I wrote was this idea of, of it was tied into Norse mythology of Ragnarok versus thimble winter. And I think probably people have heard of Ragnarok. It's the big end of the world. It's the gods verse. Uh, I think it's like the giants that they fight. And anyway, the whole world ends up blowing up in Ragnarok and starting anew. people, tend to be less aware though of this thing called thimble winter which is sort of this never ending winter that takes place before Ragnarok so it goes on for 3 seasons they're like long horribly cold years they're longer than normal there's no summer reprieve it's no end in sight sunless days bitterly cold and i was sort of saying the last couple of years we've been like really accustomed to Ragnarok type sell offs right very violent very quick and it sort of rips the band-aid off. And I'm getting the sense that everyone just wants that to happen right now. They just want it to be over yeah. with, right? And and the path of pain is is the thimble winter, which is like we just it's 2000 to 2003 of just we just have to deal with bouncy downward drifting markets. Even 2007 to 2009 was like that. It started yeah. in June, but like by June 2007 by June 2008 nothing had happened. It was just flat. Yeah, sideways. And real action was Q4 2008, Q1 2009. That was when you got the big waterfall sell-offs. I think the big, the big difference for me, the way I'm looking at it is like a lot of the stuff over the last 15 years after 2008 to me was very technically driven. You look at each of the individual market sell-offs and yeah, maybe there was like a fundamental or economic catalyst, macroeconomic catalyst, narrative at least. But it seemed to me like, you look at March 2020, a lot of that was endogenous market risk, right? You had vol sellers blowing up. You had all sorts of market dislocations. You had some vol issues in, in December 2018. Today, when I sort of look at market positioning, like everyone's already degrossed. Everyone's bought their put protection. It, it There's going to be some commodity people that blow up with these commodity moves. I don't know whether that will have the spillover effects into the equity markets that ultimately take us down. But like, economic-based sell-offs sort of almost by definition have to take longer because you have to wait for the economic risks to play out. Like you you can't just sort of, unless, unless Russia just decides to like end the war, right? You sort of have to wait for this thing to play out. You have to wait to see how long these sanctions are in place and how long those sanctions are in place are going to have impacts on commodity prices. And there's just, you can't rush that. <laughs> yeah. I got, I got a couple of good comments here that I want to I want to read out. Uh, one was that there's a shout out to uh, Prince of Wales Island in Alaska. That might be the remotest oh. place we've heard from so far. Um, yeah, Shane Warne passed away. That doesn't mean much to most of the Americans on the list. But yeah, how did you feel about that? Were you crushed or what? Gee, he was young. He was 52. But went out in went out in Thailand and like Koh Samui or something like that. So went out the way he lived. He was a ball, <laughs> he was a cricketer bowler. Bit of a party animal. Apparently. <laughs> um, Yen Liao has closed his fund. That Have you heard true. that news? Yeah. Do you know the, any of the reasoning around that? Or heard any of the words? Uh, I've heard rumors, but um, 
you know, I think it's just a uh, leave it alone. Yeah, probably should, but I think just a launched with a lot of money to start and maybe the investor base, you know, at that point was probably maybe wanted different results over a shorter period of time than what was delivered. So it kind of had to be rejiggered. Tough yeah. Tough game. Um, oil, oil seems to, oil was going parabolic over the last few weeks or so, but it seems to have sold off today with a whole, a whole lot of stuff is sold off with like, and the, uh, the tech and everything has rallied today. What's the, any, any ideas on why that's happening? Just that usual volatility mid, mid sell off. No idea. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Honestly, like, like... I, I, a lot of day-to-day stuff, at least in my opinion, is just like technical flow, right? Like why are, why is junky stuff rallying today relative to quality stuff? Well, hedge funds are typically long quality, short junk. And if they need to degross their book, it means they need to sell their quality stuff and buy their junk. And so if the market's up, that means junk's going to outperform and quality's going to underperform. Like to me, a lot of the day-to-day is just covering noise. Yeah. It's just chair shuffling and degrossing and that sort of stuff. It's, it's, you know, you got to track it for a couple of days to see if it's meaningful. I mean, and every once in a while, I think there were potentially some squeezes happening in the commodities as they were making really extreme moves. I mean, nickel being a perfect example. I don't know if you guys saw the London metal exchange, like just canceled all. Yeah. Trade, what's that about? Is, yeah. How does that work? I, I find that to be. There's uh, no way you could do that. Yeah. That <laughs> happened mean, I, in 2000, I think 11 too, didn't it? With, listen, uh, they just canceled some orders that had like come across that were, you know, had, we're way off and they're like, well, that just didn't happen. If two consenting adults get together. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> two computers get and together. Agree, and agree on a nickel price. <laughs> and they come together and agree on a nickel price. I don't know who the exchange is to say that those trades are busted. Right. Is it one side asking for it to be busted? <laughs> the losing side. Oh, yeah, that one yeah, didn't get away. Well. Yeah, I, I, I did like hear that. I did hear Give there was um and this is, this is just uh, supposedly news, maybe a rumor. It's always tough to tell with this sort of stuff when it's fresh. But I did hear there was a fund, I think out of Hong Kong, that blew up on the nickel trade. And so it was like a massive short squeeze for them trying to cover getting their margin calls. And I don't know whether the trades getting canceled will save them. Sorry, no but, tag backs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it does seem like it sort of brings into question the... Uh, I don't know. Like, how, how do you ever trade that exchange again, knowing that it could just be taken away from you at any time? How does that make a market? Yeah, yeah. agreed. We've been we've been fiddling around the edges of some things that I don't think we should fiddle around the edges of. We've that's been for the last couple of decades we've been doing that. Some things that you know, if we're all going to pretend to play according to some rules, then we got to enforce those rules all the time because there's lots of unfair outcomes. Mm. I got a good question here. Is there a bigger? Sorry. No, I just say you don't want to. Our the whole system operates because of trust, and if you if you take trust down, it gets way more expensive to do every single thing as a society, and that's that's on net very bad for us. So you don't you don't want to like pull at the jenga pieces of the trust tower. I don't think. Yeah, that was what I was trying to say less eloquently. <laughs> I've got a good question here. I'm just trying to scroll down to it. Sorry. Is there a bigger dispersion amongst winners and losers in a very inflationary environment? Like is Nike really supposed to be treated with the same as all birds and ability to deal with inflation? I think that's a good question. It is a good question. I mean, you get at pricing power, you get at brand and which is another way of saying sort of stored up pricing power that you've built over time by taking less profit than what you delivered in value to your customer. Um, you Supply get at, chain leverage. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. I don't know what, I don't know how all, all birds arranges its, its supply chains, but I imagine that they're probably can't be as good as Nike, right? Well, they've got to be I mean, a little bit more asset light, right? There's other companies doing other stuff for them that they wouldn't have brought in house. And Nike's probably got Nike's probably got 
probably doing all that stuff themselves makes it a little bit easier for them. But well, let me com- let me complicate the question, right? Because I think a lot of people would say over the last decade, we've had monetary inflation, which has been a tailwind to the growth story versus now suddenly you have both real assets, demand and supply driven inflation, which is a very different type of inflation, which could hurt a lot of those growth stories, right? So it's sort of like this interesting... Which type of inflation are we talking about here? It's just so monetary inflation is if we print a whole lot of money that shows up in the higher cost of goods and services over time. The other type, fiscal or whatever. I'm sorry, I missed what word you used then. But the, well, I was just sort of saying like like commodity supply, supply and driven demand. Demand. Why is that? Why is that all of a sudden different? Because we're we're cutting off supply. Well, we've we've got shipping issues and we've got. Um, a, a war shades. going on in yeah well i think it probably has to do with like so at least in in theory right you would expect them to be connected and but the monetary inflation seemed to never emerge it just sort of like all that money that got printed through quantitative easing if you want to call it money printing just seemed to sit on corporate balance sheets right so it never sort of seemed to escape into consumer demand yeah. velocity to prices. dropped yeah. off a cliff right so but it, it ultimately helped uh, you know, speculative growth companies, at least in theory, because money was cheap, you could raise a lot of money, debt was really cheap, versus like, today, like, asset, like commodity prices, inputs of goods have definitively gone up, right. Um, and whether that was ultimately a function of all that quantitative easing, or monetary policy over the last 15 years, or whether that's, you know, from COVID demand shocks, Russia driven supply shocks, is, is a different question, but like one is much more to me immediate. Like there is no doubt the cost of goods has gone up today. Yeah. And you can't print more oil or print more, a print, a supply chain. Right. Whereas maybe you could theoretically solve some of the kind of more monetary inflation. If you were able to suck, stop printing. <sighs> We haven't even done that yet, though. That's kind of the scary thing is it's like the balance sheet has still been expanding. It's just slowed down. <laughs> what do you call that? It's like verbal austerity it's or something insanity, like that. Remember, I think remember the austerity? That was a word that we used to use. Here's yeah, the question. So no what, is, austerity. What, what do you guys think the Fed does? Do they, do they change their... Do they become more dovish on hikes and more hawkish on the balance sheet? Like, what, what do you think? the path forward here is now that things have gotten more complicated. I think they, their, their default setting is to print as much as they possibly can. And the only reason that they were talking about doing anything was because inflation has been ripping, but now they've got an excuse for inflation. That's got nothing to do with what the money that they're printing. So now they're just back onto the, the print is going to run. I, I think that mm. there might be some like little, you know, 25 basis point raise is meaningless and they'll do a few of them probably just because it looks good. And then in a, in a few quarters, we'll, we'll panic and we'll, we'll go, we'll, we'll reverse it all. Put it back to zero. Put it back to well, zero. Yeah. So the reason I ask is like, certainly oil up in the short term is immediately inflationary, right? By any measure. But long term, it seems to be deflationary because it creates negative economic growth shocks, right? Demand disappears. It sort of self-corrects which is bad for earnings, right? And so the Fed, I don't think, wants to be hiking into that economic decline, right? They should have been hiking over the last few years, but they just, they haven't. So now we're at the point of the cycle where you're right. Now we should be lowering because oil, oil's going to do it. Oil's going to do what the hiking was going to do anyway. Oil's going to spike the bubble. Oil already has, I think. Could be. <laughs> yeah, that was... well, real bullish conversation today, boys. Yeah, well, I, th- I, th- I think to be fair, I'm I'm always pretty bearish. I'm all. I... <laughs> <laughs> this isn't new. <laughs> yeah, like don't don't come here for the sunshine. All right, so so maybe I'm just. By the way, I've just taken over as host. <laughs> yeah. No, please. Go, 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 so go. so I'm trying to, I'm trying to read what what is the most bullish thing you can think of right now? Well, I I do I like the fact that there are some there are some names that I think are there are some businesses that are too good for the price that they're trading at, at the moment. And I, I don't this sort of 
I, I would prefer that the market get a little bit more beaten up so you can, you know, swing through and hoover up some of those better names. Whenever there's, whenever there's like weakness in the market like this, I think it's a great opportunity to upgrade the portfolio, buy some better quality at, better, at, at lower prices. My most bullish thing is looking longer term and saying that humans and ingenuity and technology is going to help us have a better tomorrow. And that if anything, we probably needed a little bit of some hard times to increase our character and, and be a, a better version of ourselves. Hard when times we get make there. strong men. Yeah, true. So you can't, it can't be easy and also get to that point where you you need to be so i think long term i'm incredibly bullish on humanity even the u.s uh, even some people seem to be a little bit like if you listen to dalio at all like it sounds like the u.s empire is over but i don't i think i'm hopeful that uh we find ourselves again and kind of go back to our roots a little bit as to what was important that got us here like trust capitalism uh democracy free press, all those important things. I was watching um, Station Eleven. You know, it's like post-apocalyptic, uh, a, a virus, like a flu-like virus kills most people. And then there are various little pockets of people around. And the, the episode that I got to last night, the kid is on his, he, he downloads Wikipedia onto this little handheld computer. And he's looking at the definition of capitalism. And he's like, uh, can we just delete it and pretend like it didn't happen? Like, huh. Deluded. All right, Toby, I want to go back to your point, though, about upgrading the portfolio. So because you're talking about these pockets of like, and, it, and it's really interesting. I don't know if you uh, follow New River Invest on Twitter, uh, but he, he posted something, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, where he was highlighting the different valuation ratios in sort of like the Morningstar style boxes. Mm. And interestingly, from like a historical percentile basis, small cap growth was actually like one of the, on a historical basis, one of the cheapest areas right now versus like large value. Over what period? Uh, looking back going to, I think it was like early 2000s. So if you compared current sort of earnings, I think it was PE PEs usually, on yeah. a percentile versus historical going back to two, early 2000, I think it was, it was uh, in the one of the lowest versus like small, a large value, I think was uh, up at like the 90th percentile. Like it's been bid up pretty significantly. And I'm starting to see that in sell side notes too. Like it was saying uh, people buying into commodity producers and all that sort of stuff like the net positions are multiples higher than where they've been historically what do they do in that small cap value with all the money losers though to come up with an e for that uh small cap growth or but yes, I, small yes, cap growth but where like there's even probably more, even so, more right? earning losers. Yeah. yeah 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 you know i don't know that's a good question so you that's drop all question. the you drop half of them that are you know, <laughs> have no earnings, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, this looks cheap. Yeah, yeah. I had I hadn't noticed that honestly. I I, I don't know. I because I I still am trying to put put it together bottom up, even though I the process that I have. So I yeah, I've been I've been I'm always surprised at some of the names that come in to the to hitting range for me because I tend to be more conservative. Um, but yeah, there's some, I mean, I, I do remember, I distinctly remember from 2000 and say three until 2007, buying a whole lot of really cringy tech that like, I, this is what I, I've said this a few times, but this is kind of like, this is what I think happens. Like tech becomes violently uncool. Like the, it's in some ways, the financial markets are like, you know, fashion. Like if you have the wrong colored jeans on, like you buy, you buy a pair of jeans three or four years later, you walk outside. It's like they're fluorescent yellow or something like the color of the dye has just changed so much that they just look terrible. And the cut, you know, the cut looks yeah. terrible relative. And I think that that happens to stocks as well. Like these tech stocks that were just, that everybody fell in love with. Like they, the, the other side of that love is this hatred for them. They just become incredibly cringy. And I think that's, you know, that's a good opportunity to go and pick that sort of stuff up. So I, I, I didn't, but there's no way, there's no way we're there yet. I mean, you look at like flows into arc. Yeah. Still they, positive. Uh, they had 850 million come in over the last month. 
people have been conditioned to buy the drip. Yeah. Yeah. It's everything rockets back up the second it it's like a the golf ball off the cart path, right? But it it hasn't, I mean, it hasn't bounced. I don't don't know where ARC is today, but it was still off pretty significantly this year after being off pretty significantly last year, particularly from the peak last year. Well, it's down to pre-COVID highs. It's not a full round trip. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? A A lot of of stocks have done that. Yeah. A lot of those techie stocks have done that. It's like the two years didn't exist. And I got to say, I don't mind, like we can scrub those two years off the the record books. I don't care. Warren B once again getting the last laugh. Who yeah. could have ever expected it? I thought the world had passed him by for sure this time. It turns out he's the world's greatest tech investor too. I do love that. <sighs> yeah, that, that's actually dominating every style that there has been. Like he's like style bender for your yeah, for UTC. Yeah. That's sort of where my question was going though, Toby. Like I remember back in was it 2016, and you talked about this on my podcast where Apple just became a value stock. Like I was starting to question whether some of these small cap growth names were gonna start appearing in deep value portfolios. Yeah, I think they will. I, I certainly I, I can't I've got a rebalance coming up, so I can't say too much, but yes, I <laughs> I, I I'm I'm like licking you your want chops. me to front run you? <laughs> <laughs> you I want to tell me the names up front? Yeah. I, I've got one that I'll t- I'll talk about it after after rebound, but it, it'll it'll make people giggle. I mean, if if to, to the extent that anybody's heard of this thing, but I remember this name from a little. This is not this is not this is like a over the last decade. This name was about five years ago. This name was very very hot. But it it's it, I hadn't seen it for a long time, and when it popped up in my screen, I had a little giggle when it came through. Particularly where it's it's trading on a P of about six or seven at the moment. It's pretty funny. Are you buying Crocs again? <laughs> Damn, dude. I, I'll, Crocs, Crocs are in, man. Crocs is, Crocs is in the screen too. <laughs> Crocs is close. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can bring myself to do that. But I, I did see a few people calling on on uh, like before Crocs had its recent run. Uh, there were people who were banging the table on Crocs, and I kind of I kind of laughed at the time. But who knows? Crocs is like a it's a cockroach or something. You can't kill it. You it know, just keeps I, it going. I I remember going out this summer and. All the te- like, I went out for ice cream with my wife, and we're like all the little teenagers on dates were all wearing Crocs, and I was like, "What How is funny. going on?" And then I looked at the stock price, and I was like, "Well, I guess they're buying." Yeah, how funny! <laughs> That's funny. My 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 kids, as I was walking into school yesterday, this my my six year old was like, "What is what is bookface?" And my my eight year old then tried to explain to him what bookface was, which is Facebook, and I was like, "That's so funny." They they don't even know book what it face. is. Uh, what is bookface? Wouldn't you like to live in that world where <laughs> you didn't even know where that was? <laughs> yeah, I didn't think that was pretty funny. JT, you want to do some veggies? Yeah, hopefully this uh, maybe ties in our conversation a little bit more. And um, so <laughs> this is a little shout out from somebody sent me this video on this guy PK13 on Twitter. And I don't know whether to be uh, offended or that this is an amazing thing that someone sent me a, a video to watch about like a nuclear explosion and what that would be like if you were in it. Um, but this video is put together by, uh, I don't know how to say this. It's some German word like Kurzgesetzt or something like that. I don't know. I totally was probably way off, but they make all these little like animation videos. They do a lot of them about nature. They're really cool. Like they're super interesting. They're well narrated. Um, but they happen to team up with the Red Cross to do one about what it would be like if a nuclear bomb went off in a major city. Now, it's a little bit jarring. And I, I, apologize. I talked to Toby about this before I decided whether I was going to do this segment or not, because I was like, is this like too much, too negative, too dark? But it is a, I think there are some things we can pull from this over and above just the awesome and i use that in the more like i am full of awe at at what the power of this is not awesome like that's cool um so hopefully no one gets offended by this and if it if they do i'm I'm very sorry and i i pray that we don't actually have to see this in our in our lifetimes um but it does feel a little bit like this might be i don't know if you guys remember when you were a kid but like i remember having nuclear bomb drills like you had to like get under the desk and um, maybe I'm da- dating myself a little bit there, but you didn't do that in Australia. No. No, yeah. well, you guys are too far uh, away. No one gives a shit I'm about what's happening there. <laughs> yeah. You're too young and you're too from another planet. Um, so 
in the US, we had we had nuclear bomb drills when I was little, but they went away by the time I was probably like six or seven. And then I don't know, I guess when the Soviet Union collapsed, we didn't worry about it anymore. But um, but it kind of feels like hiding under your desk was going to save you. I know it's like ridiculous, (laughs) right? So this is, uh, as you know, like it's just such immense levels of energy that are released in one of these things. I mean, it's just, it's ungodly. Uh, But what happens is like, there's this intense wave of light, heat, pressure, uh, and radiation that just like is instantly explodes out. And in phase one, which is like less than one second worth, the uh, like in a millisecond, basically, like there's this ball of plasma that's hotter than the sun that instantly just like pops out like two kilometers across. So, I mean, you can imagine if you're and if you are or anything that is in that two kilometers, it's basically vaporized. It's like putting water onto a hot skillet, you know, how it just like sizzles and then it's gone. Like that's what happens. And all that soil and water and construction material, cars, people get just vaporized into like less than dust instantly and then carried upwards. And that's like what the mushroom cloud is. Right? Except for the people hiding under their desks. They're all yeah. completely you're safe. safe, right? <laughs> like the exactly. people in the, in the uh, crashed position in planes when the plane crashes, they just bounce free of the wreckage. Wait, yeah. can you say that? Sorry. The plas- the the plasma bubble, the two kilometer plasma bubble, the mushroom cloud is actually from the vaporization of all the stuff caught up in the plasma bubble. Right. And so all that's that horrifying. Stuff- mixes with the radioactive material and that that mushroom cloud that comes up then is what eventually like that's what fallout is is all of that stuff when it's up in the atmosphere uh starts sticking back together and becoming dust particles and and then it will eventually rain this like toxic death from above but well that that happens a little bit later we'll get to that uh but before that the um in that first millisecond, if you happen to be looking in the direction of this, you're, you will be blinded for at least a few hours. Like you will not be able to see anything. It's that bright of a flash. And the, there's a thermal pulse that then will go out 13 kilometers. So that ends up being like 500 square kilometers if you, you know, do the math on that. But so like 13, a radius of 13 kilometers that basically like if anything is is combustible it will be ignited it's basically like a firestorm so like your clothes your hair your skin your car paint like wood anything that is combustible will just basically like catch on fire within 13 kilometers from here because it's just so hot uh and then phase two is the next couple of seconds after that millisecond that just happened uh that heat then also creates this compression of air that is expanding and pushes out. And it's basically like a hurricane faster than hurricane winds that blow through and just like shove everything away. Um, you know, most buildings are just ground down to like the base from this windstorm. The, the, uh, naturally the shockwave will, will like lessen as it expands. But by the time it gets out there, like you have, I think it's 175, square kilometers will basically just be like instantly collapsed as if a hurricane had happened. Um, now, and that mushroom cloud then also, because it pulls up, it actually pulls in fresh air from all around the surrounding area. And so it'll be tons of oxygen actually mixing in. And so like, it'll be like, it'd be like putting, uh, you know, a, a hairdryer onto the fire. Like it, like everything will just like even like the fires will be even worse because of this oxygen that's being pulled in from the mushroom cloud moving up. Um, so then phase three is like the hours and days after this happens. And, you know, this, it's basically like a nuclear explosion is effectively like every natural disaster that we know happening simultaneously. It's an earthquake, it's a fire, it's a tornado. Uh, and then, of course, the radiation part of it, like as if you had a nuclear uh, plant that melted down. So after this, the, there, a black radiation rain will fall down af- from this cloud after it coalesces. Uh, and basically every breath that you take within that area is going to be poison for you. You're internalizing radiation. Anything you get on your skin is problem. 
I'm laughing a little bit because the comments are pretty funny. <laughs> Phase three is when the Fed cut rates. <laughs> well, so that's the next thing is that like no government wants to tell you this, but there is no infrastructure to mitigate this kind of disaster. Like every hospital is going to in your area is going to be leveled and or every neighboring hospital from any city is going to be overrun. Like we just do not have the capabilities for this. Like you are on your own, basically. Um which is scary, right? Like, and like, and then as time plays on, more and more people, more and more the survivors will succumb to cancers like leukemia um, because of the radiation that they absorbed. And so, th there's no nation on Earth that is that has any real mitigation plan for this. So all of this stuff is like scary, and and it's, the the video is meant to be scary because it wants to push the agenda of like we we need to all as a species band together and say like, we have to disarm all these and kind of make an agreement for everyone that like, there's, it's such a horrific outcome that we shouldn't have these. And um, I think that's a pretty noble vision, actually. Like I would like to see us walk that back. I'm, I'm very skeptical that'll happen, but um, all right. So all of that said, I thought maybe it'd be interesting to kind of connect it back to our previous conversations. And one of the things that's happened with, in Russia is that like something that you may have owned just got vaporized. It was almost like that was that millisecond that in the very beginning of it, that like just exploded and like that just disappeared. Like it doesn't exist anymore. Right. Um, you know, you're, I read somewhere that the, I think the Kentucky pension system was like owned a decent chunk of, oh, I don't know how you say it, it's spur bank. Yeah, it's not, it wasn't true. It wasn't true. Okay. Well, no, they, that was that was a rumor and it they they actually did a whole press release being like no we don't Corey, don't ruin my story sorry <laughs> with, with sorry sorry to bring facts into it your facts um i'm sure someone was on the holding the bag there at some somehow right so yeah there, there was a fund called h2o that basically blew themselves up for like the 14th time because they were way overweight russia <laughs> okay so so we have this initial like phase one which i think we've just maybe kind of live through a little bit but now there's phase two of like sanctions and all this other stuff that's interconnected and like i don't i'm not sure we really know where all the radiation is going to be happening where the the interconnected you know second and third order effects are you know who's going to get leukemia from this like i think this could take it's obviously plays out on a much longer timeline than a nuclear explosion but that that issue of like it's vaporized and now you know, we have to pick up the pieces and like, what are the, the next losses that happen because of that? Like, I think, I don't think we're done with this is what I'm saying. And that we, we probably need to be mindful that we're, we're in the middle of something. Have we seen any blowups? Kind of less know. than we're you just would seen... expect, huh? Like, like yeah. where's the, where's the long-term capital management right now getting blown up because of like a ruble, you know, issue like last time. Yeah. You heard anything like that, Corey? No, I mean, I've heard um, commodity spaces where it would be right now. I mean, like equity markets, no one had a tremendous amount of exposure to Russia, uh, as far as I know. And they've been so isolated over the last 20 years that I don't think anyone would dare have the type of ruble exposure that you saw in like the 90s. So it's, I just think it's a different regime situation. Um, I did hear rumors of, again, like certain firms having too much Russia equity exposure or certain firms having commodity issues right now, but I haven't heard on like really serious knock-on events yet. Yeah. We, we, what, what was that uh, indicator we were looking at this morning, JT, that hadn't, it hasn't really spiked that much. That was the. Oh, the, the high yield spread. The high yield spread. Yeah. The, that hasn't moved. You have seen um, CDS of like a bunch of European banks start to really pick up. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because like they probably had a little more Russia exposure. They probably got, they're probably yeah. in that. They might be in that like second, you know, thirteen kilometer radius. <laughs> yeah, and and by the way, Russia just uh, declared that they were banning the export of all products and raw materials until December thirty first. December thirty first. Yep. So it went from a sub. The supply side deciding we were going to do an economic sanction to now, actually the demand side deciding an economic sanction to the supply side has basically said, uh, they've given us the middle finger and said, <laughs> even if you want it, we're not giving it to you. Now, it seems to me like that's sort of like 
cutting off your nose to spite your face when you need those exports economically, but we'll see how it plays out. Maybe a negotiation technique. Yeah. But I agree. I agree with you, Jake, in terms of like the, right. So to, I'll, I'll tie this back to what I said earlier. Like the initial drop is the Ragnarok, right? That's the chaos. But like the fallout here is this prolonged, we need to wait to see how these economic risks play out. Like there's this future event risk and we don't know when it's going to happen and we don't know what it's going to be. We just know there's this like amorphous event risk out there and it's sort of realizing slowly and in lumps over time and the market needs to digest what the implications are. And so I think that's why you're seeing the markets down, you know, 12, 13% or at least the S and P is year to date. It's not down 40 or 50, right? Cause there's nothing that says it should be yet, but you could see that grind lower and you're getting days like today that the market was down 80 bips. I think when we started the show, the market was up 150 and then I just checked and it's flat again. <laughs> right. Is it really? No one yeah. knows what they're doing. <laughs> so it's all, it's all over the place. I mean, uh, and I think, I think you're, you're spot on and, uh, it's, it's really hard to digest all this complicated second and third order stuff because it's not clear right? What the, uh, who's macro... in the blast radius. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's, not, it's also not clear, like what the, the second order effects are, or when you're dealing with someone like Putin, like when he's just going to decide to say, you know what, we're not even going to give you the supply. We're cutting you off. You don't want it. Fine. We're cutting you off. Yeah. Breaking up with you first. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Preemptive breakup. <laughs> it's a funny... make... Go ahead, Sorry, Toby. Oh, I was just going to say it's, the 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 world sort of has gone in this funny direction over the last few years. Where now you can't have China as your sole source of supply, at least for sort of manufactured goods, and now you can't you can't have Russia as your supplier for whatever it is, wheat and oil. What does that do to the shape of the world? Do we do we have this world that just breaks into two, where there's China, Russia, I don't know, Iran, whoever else is on that side? western world on the other side does it go back to sort of like a quasi cold war yeah, does, some it strength, sort of different does it strengthen the dollar or weaken the dollar as the reserve currency right does this help china yeah. or ultimately hurt china are there two i mean there's there's got to be they've got to be considering another reserve currency haven't they they've got to be considering china and and russia won't won't put up with that will they they'll have to they'll have to create their own well, that's if Russia comes out of this. I mean, they, 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 I think they risk very real hyperinflation economic collapse scenario if this drags on longer. I mean, I, I to me, who, who U.S. or Russia? Russia for sure. Okay. I think. I think. Look, I, I'm, I am by no means a macro expert. I am by no means uh, a war expert. It seems to me like Russia has not committed the forces to Ukraine that they could have that would have just been a clean sweep. I think if Russia wants to take Ukraine, it's at least, you know, the way the U.S. took Afghanistan. I don't know if they can hold Ukraine in the long term, but I think they could have taken Ukraine pretty easily. It seems weird to me that they just sort of like are slowly meandering their way in. Maybe it was to try to like reduce the blowback, but to me, the economic sanctions killed them from an economic perspective. I mean, you've seen what's happened with the ruble and they're having bank runs. They, they must have worked through all these issues before they kicked the whole thing off, mustn't they? They must have thought this is the likely Who's response. They? I mean, Russia, is it literally just Putin deciding? Uh, right. Who's, hey, saying no to, who's saying no to Putin? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know how it works. Yeah. I would have, but, I would have thought you just you think through a few scenarios, right? You just go on the back of a napkin you just figure yeah, out what's gonna just happen. like play a game of risk together and <laughs> so but let me ask you guys this right because okay so so ukraine gets invaded and all of a sudden you know you don't have access to your bank if you're an investor you don't have access to to markets anymore um you may not even have access to cryptocurrency at that point right and it, it made me think a lot about like in a true you know, catastrophe situation, what is your reserve asset, right? People might say food, clothing, ammo, maybe gold, right? You need like maybe gold coins that you carry around. But part of that where, where the, the, my thinking went was if you live in the Ukraine and Russia's on your doorstep and you think that is sort of an existential risk to your safety, 
how much of your assets do you keep in exposures like that? Because you need to, because you, 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 there is this risk that like you, you might have to flee one day versus in the U S like I have never in my life considered the fact that like my exchange could shut down and all of my net worth that's invested in stocks could become unavailable to me. I haven't once considered that. And I wonder how many American investors ever have and what a luxury it is for us to be able to continue to invest in risk, productive risk assets and what that does for our economy versus the potential tax in other economies where they don't have that luxury, right? That they can't commit the same amount of capital because they have to sort of reserve some in some sort of hedge. Well, this is the part that really frustrates me with our lack of a backbone from our political leaders is that we jeopardize all of a lot of those things that we take for granted by taking the really easy decision today and kicking the can down the road for tomorrow and making it someone else's problem. And I, I will readily admit that that is probably an, a, a probable outcome of any democracy with a short term limit where it's like, Hey, that's going to be the next guy's next guy's problem. Like I, I'm just going to try to get reelected and, uh, I know my time here, like I have to just get my little things done. And then the really tough decisions are for someone else. Uh, but you can't just keep doing that over and over again until you get now you're left with only hard decisions. And to me, it's like, it's very frustrating to have such weak leaders that wouldn't like, there's no Paul Volcker's not walking into the Mariner Eckers building anytime soon. Like that guy's not there anymore. Um, and that's frustrating to me because I feel like we had something pretty special and we could still, but we jeopardize it because of a lack of, of will really, and leadership. I think that there is some, I, I you know, my, my sentiments are to agree with that, but there are, there are plenty of guys on plenty of talking heads on television who'll tell you that um, the Fed's been doing a great job. I mean, I, 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 I realize you're not necessarily just talking about the Fed there, but it's not, you know, they, they, and they would say, look, the, the stock market's essentially at all-time highs. Why is that considered winning, though? Like, that's... <laughs> well, there's that's... lots of venture capital being deployed. There's lots of venture capital out there. You know, to, to, the, the US has created a lot of these. Like, there, there's really... Every other stock market in the world, essentially, probably other than China, looks... You know, they're basically like Australia or Canada. They're heavily resources and yeah heavily basic materials and then there's a big chunk of banks and financials and there's really not much else in sort of consumer discretionary whereas the u.s produces like huge amounts of consumer discretionary stocks which are the things that really seem to be the only difference between the u.s stock market and the rest of the world it's why the u.s stock market's been so successful ever i mean it's not necessarily the fed that's doing it or but there's there's some condition some attitudinal some something in the American psych or something in the institutions that's created that. Yeah. I mean, I I'm, I'm sympathetic to the argument that we kind of could overclock the system by having really loose monetary and maybe you explore the frontier of technology faster in an overclock system by having cheap money chasing it around. Um, it's an interesting idea. I just maybe it's I just, the singularity. I know that you have to pay maybe for we're approaching it though, the singularity. Could be. In which case, none of this matters. <laughs> well, I love that. There's that. I think it's um, Keynes, and I think I don't know if he actually says it in the general theory. I can't remember where this comes from, but there's a great line from him where he says, and he said it in like 29 in the crash. Basically, you should be fully invested in all of these names and you shouldn't be selling out because if I'm wrong and it goes to zero, then it's not going to matter. If it recovers, then, you know, you, you... rich bitch. <laughs> Is that what he said? So, words to that effect. Yeah. I, I think that's right. Like, and I kind of, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're very far so into it's the a volatility. Pascal's either. wager for, for markets. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I don't think we're far into the volatility. I think we could have, you know, if this is a, a mega bear, which it, who knows, it could be. That's that's a possibility. It's not it's not necessarily either. Could easily just bounce from here and we go back to normal. But if it is, then um, probably don't want to shoot your wad too early. I guess there's there's no there's that's the that's the problem, right? You you're, you're stuck in this um, 
you should be roughly fully invested now in all of the good names and then proceed down another 20 or 30%, just wear it all the way down. Well, here's, here's a little stat for you guys, because I like to, to talk numbers. So this comes from Goldman Sachs. They, um, what you're seeing right now to that point, Toby, like you don't think the volatility is over is that like talk is cheap right now. So you look at all the indicators that would people measure sentiment and they're incredibly bearish right now. Yeah. Right. And that's normally an indicator that we're near the bottom. Right. But what you're not seeing is flow slow down or turn negative. So if you look at risky versus safe asset flow over the last four weeks, it's still in the top hundred percentile since 2007. If you look at global equity flow over the last 12 months, it's near the top hundred percentile and global equity flow over the last three months. It's near the top hundred percentile since 2007. You still just have a tremendous amount of money. And to the point I made earlier about like ARC raising $850 million, the flow is still into risky assets. And I think that's because, you know, not to say this is not like a blaming on retail, but like long only investors that are unlevered, they don't get blown up. They just sort of slowly capitulate on a rolling basis. Right. Yeah. And so they can keep buying in and buying in. I mean, again, ARC has round-tripped its net lost investors' money on a dollar-weighted basis, but people continue to pile in because they believe in the thesis. And I'm, I'm, neither, I'm not saying it's right or wrong on, on what they do, but what you are seeing from a behavioral perspective is the sentiment and what people's actions are could not be further apart. Or it's perhaps like- people think, oh, I know the thing to do when sentiment's low, it's to buy, right? And we sort of have, now now it's the game theory of like, oh no, everyone knows to do that. So it can't be the bottom. Well, I I talk about that a little bit with the fear and greed index. Like I always think it's the, the, it's a sort of an arbitrary construction of that index. There's no, that's why someone was chipping me for saying it's a nonsense index. It is a nonsense (laughs) index, but in a short-term basis, it's, it has seemed to be reasonably predictive of these short-term bottoms because it, when the, when it goes below 20, that seems to be a good time to buy. But I always put the caveat on it that um, we don't know what it looks like through a 2007, 8, 9 type scenario because the index starts in 2010 and we haven't had a mega bear since 2010. So we don't really know what happens to that sentiment. I, I, I would love to know. I mean, can it, does it go negative? I've got no idea. Yeah, that's the thing. It's calibrated on, you get down to below 20, but that that 20 on a more historical adjusted basis is like 80, right? Do you, do you think it's something like the Michael Green thesis, Corey, to that, that flow thing that you're talking about before, where basically there's so much passive yeah, how flow? Does, how does indexing fit into all this? Yeah, I'm not Michael Green, so I can only, <laughs> I can only speculate. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, right, you, I will tell you, again, a lot of like sell-side notes that have come out in the last couple of weeks are talking about quarter-end rebalancing right? Where you're probably going to see selling down of bonds and buying of equities and target date strategies and global target risk portfolios that knocks into um, equities that are held within the index versus not. During those sorts of rebalance periods, you tend to see uh, equities within the index outperform equities outside the index. So there are some like short-term knock-on effects of that stuff. But I think again, we we are- um, have we seen that recently? Well, you know, the, the, one of the, one of the simplest indicators I think is just the equal weight index versus the, versus the market cap float adjusted yeah. weight, the, the index that we all know and love when, when, no. so this is more like that, Russ, this is more like S and P 500 versus Russell 1000, like a lot more target date stuff includes the S and P 500 versus the Russell 1000. Okay. So not like equal weight within, but yeah, I, you know, to your point, like, is it all going to large cap flow? You know, is it helping sustain large cap? I don't know. I mean, I think it's an interesting question of like, as a nation, we have turned the market into a savings vehicle every two weeks, you know, uh, with 401k plans, does that change the dynamics of where things were in the two thousands, right? Consider the fact that in the two thousands target date funds were a sub $10 billion industry, and now they're close to three trillion. Jesus, mm. right? Good, so how good like, marketing? <laughs> how does that change dynamics of the world? Where like you are, you're now literally like forced savings is yeah. flow into the market supporting equities, and with demographic glide path built in. Right. 
just to go back to the, I, I think it's an interesting example of what Michael Green is talking about, that historically equal weight has tended to outperform uh, the, the market cap flood adjusted weight version of these indexes for the reason that equal weight sort of a proxy for, for value, right? They're buying, they're buying more of the cheaper things and less of the more expensive things just by be, being equally weighted across the, all of them. And for a long time over the last, historically equal weight has outperformed, but for the last few years, uh, the, the other ones have outperformed equal weight pretty consistently. Uh, but I think that that might've turned around roughly about the same time that value started working. Do, do you guys know off the top of your head if that's, if that's still the case? I don't. Because I, I know do, that- I do think that human nature hasn't changed though. And that if there's enough pain quotationally, even in your target date fund, when it, if it's going down and it keeps going down and going down, then you, people will capitulate, even with the best laid plans of financial advisors of you know not punching out. I just human nature is is kind of uh, involuble. Do people pay? I don't think people pay as much attention to it. Like most people don't pay as much attention to it as we do. They're not looking as often as we are. They get an update once a year at the end of the year, and it tells them how they've done. I mean, that was what when I was working. That was what. I used to get an update for my retirement funds. You know, this is how much money you lost this year. Like, great. <laughs> so it brings in, it, it actually raises to me an interesting question about like delayed wealth effect, right? Do you tend to see like, okay, the wealth effect, if the market goes down 30% and people end, yeah. open their end of year, like these does echoes, that knock on into their spending, you know, for the next six months? Yeah, it's a good question probably true i mean it kind of has to be right i i kind of find it amazing that arc is so relentlessly bored <laughs> i mean honestly like, it's the future toby come on this is you know I, listen i will i as the non-value investor i will defend arc not from an investment perspective but she has built a brilliant business i, I agree said, with that i say this over and over Investment management is different than asset management. Asset management is a distribution game. She has built a brilliant brand. She's adopted social media. She's a terrific evangelist. I don't care if you agree with her methodology or not. You cannot disagree that she's built a pretty brilliant business. I agree with that. And I've said that, totally. I've said that lots of times. So I'm, I'm hugely impressed by uh, Kathy. And the, the thing that she's built and in such a short period of time and it's, and for lots of other reasons, cause it's tough to, to do that, to do that, what she has done, but every other, you know, famous stock market peak has had that mutual Person. fund or, yeah. or, or brand that was sort of the go-go um, mutual fund of the day. And it, you know, it, it was Janus funds in 2000 and it was like literally like the go-go years, uh, like Gerald Tsai and, and the, 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 every single time they've been washed away and they sort of were unable to come back. And here she is, she's, she was down 50 plus percent last year, down 40% this year so far and could recover at any point here. But the flows have been positive. Like that's kind of, to, to your point, Corey, like she, she's, she, the business is, is kind of incredible. And I'm amazed that people are, uh, you know that, that that may that may be the right thing to do. That may be exactly the right thing to do to keep on buying if if the thesis is sound. But people don't usually do the right thing, do they? No, that that has been the surprising part. Is people normally you expect the shiny object performance chasing, though. In my experience, what tends to happen is like a fund hits it really big, it invites more flows, it starts to underperform, and like half the money goes out. Typically enough people go, they don't want to admit they're wrong because selling is an admission you're wrong, Yeah. but you don't tend to see the doubling down. And that's, what's been really impressive here. And it, I think part of it is like, people are committed to the story. There is a class of investors who truly believe in this disruptive innovation thesis and you know, whether they think the valuations are right or wrong, they might think they're far more attractive now than they were two years ago. And so why wouldn't you pile more money a 15 year investor in this thesis? I hope that that's the case. And I hope that she's right, actually, because I, I kind of want to live in the world that she's describing. 
I just also know that it's uh, it's really hard to predict what the eventual supply of all these things will be, what the competitive dynamics for these companies are, which means like, what's the profit pool look like? Well, I saw, here, here's, here's a stat for you, Jake. I saw someone went through all the analyst reports and added up the target um, earnings. The it, uh, it, wasn't yeah. just, it wasn't the TAM, it was like the target potential market cap of all these companies that they were investing in. And the sum of all their market caps was larger than like the entire US market cap currently is. And it was like, okay, <laughs> that's like, there, there is, there is a speed limit here. You have to adhere to, <laughs> but ha- having said that, I mean, if someone had pointed out like not even that long ago, right? 10 years ago, 12 years ago, if they had said it'll be, fa- you know, Fang or fat man or whatever the, whatever the, the uh, acronym, acronym that you want to use for that is, that, that'll be like the big chunk of the index. Like that would have been quite hard to believe too. I think at the time. Yeah, yeah, but there's a difference between big chunk of the index and larger than the entire U.S. market cap. But I mean, it's like we're, we're talking like 25 percent of the in, like it's. I, I get that it's, it's not quite on the same same level, but it's you know, stranger things have happened. I don't know. <laughs> I'll take the maybe, maybe on that not one. maybe 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 nothing that strange has ever happened. That might be that might be a big call. That's time, fellas. It could happen, but it's not the way to bet. <laughs> You're saying there's a chance. Yeah. That was fun. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for. Thank you, guys. I appreciate the time.